Hello, this is a voice created entirely with artificial intelligence. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. Take it away, guys. From Gupta Media, TikTok myths versus facts. From Billboard, the case for and against higher streaming subscription rates. And from a CBC documentary, is the music industry being reshaped for the better or worse by tech companies? Well, that's mm. an interesting thought, Jay. Well, I'll have to talk about that. So this, <laughs> these stories, I should say, and more, Jay and I are going to wrap about today. Welcome. We're happy you're here. It's the Your Morning Coffee podcast, and we are going to press the button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, happy Easter, Jay. Top of the morning to you. Good Ah, to see you. It is Easter weekend. Um, Yeah. Uh, happy Easter. And I assume that's um, why you're wearing a, a bunny outfit, because it's Easter weekend. <laughs> right. That's exactly it's a good, it. It's a good look. I think it is. I think it is. Um, how about that uh, intro? That really was created with artificial intelligence. It sounds oh, like a real so human being. It um, sure does. <laughs> but I've been playing around with it, because you and I have been talking so much about people who are creating songs, whether it's lyrics, whether it's music, whether it's kind of drawing from someone's body of work, like we talked uh, with Chris Castle last week. Um, so I was playing around with it and I created this, uh, this voice. Um, and it was, I used a, a platform called play.ht, but there's a lot of platforms out there where mm-hmm. you can uh, <laughs> create things like this, but that was, uh, that was fun. Amazing, actually. And I know some teacher friends that are using, because, you know, obviously teachers and educators are worried about all this technology where a kid can just say, I want to write a, you know, a, a, a 2000 word uh, term paper on Benjamin Franklin and out it goes. Yeah. Uh, but I also know teachers that are using it to write lesson plans saying, you know, let right. me, let me give me a sixth grade class lesson plan on the nitrogen cycle. And yeah. There it goes. So it's going to be interesting, so interesting to see not only the tools that are needed to identify when it is used, but also 
the tools just to ha- how it will shape and, and improve, hopefully, our everyday lives and, and the things that we're yeah. using. So it's fascinating. Yeah, it's times. in its infancy right now, um, but it is moving pretty quickly. And there is software out there now that's also getting better at analyzing things to see if they were made with artificial intelligence. So it's going to be on both sides uh, of that equation. I think our conversation last week with uh, Chris Castle about artificial intelligence and music, if you haven't heard that, go back to that episode. It's, It's really interesting how we thought that maybe the technology had gone so fast that the business and the rules and laws surrounding it maybe needed to catch up. But as Chris explains, that's not really the case. And I would like to kind of talk to him further at some point about that, because I, the more I thought about it last, after the, we did the episode, actually, I'm thinking, man, but, you know, how, how do you identify like snippets of songs or, or even, you know, the, the, like, like you, I think we were talking about like, let's creating a, a song in the style of Nirvana. But yeah. that's also kind of the style of a number of other artists. And Nirvana, of course, uh, came about by their influences. You know, how do you really kind of pull apart all of those different influences in a potential AI-created song? I mean, I understand yeah. that the his point that the, the, the we actually have a lot of things in place to, to do that from a business standpoint. But on the creative side, it's like, wow... I could see that actually being pretty hard, but but we'll see. I mean, it's it's early days, and it, it really we will is figure it out. And some of the ways that they look at this is if you're drawing, let's you use the Nirvana example. Um, if they're drawing from Nirvana's body of work, then that will be um, maybe a little bit easier for them to determine that that was the case. Um, it may be harder. Um, when it's multiple artists or a genre or mood. So my head's just spinning. We'll just have to uh, follow this closely uh, because it's definitely going to affect this music industry uh, in a big way. And speaking of... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. I was going to say, and I, and I think we're both going to be at NAM this week, aren't we? The, the NAM show, which is the big, oh, you're not going, um, but it's going to be, I'm going to be there and I'm already getting invitations to come and go to certain booths with a lot of music creation AI tools. And I can hardly wait to see what's out there and what's coming. And I'm sure it's just going to be crazy, unbelievably yeah. crazy. Yeah. So you'll have to, it's, it's you'll have to report back what you, uh, what you see. I'm, I was supposed to be doing a panel with Mike Branvold, um, at NAM, Um, but I got an opportunity to go to Nashville and participate oh, in this right. really cool event, which we will cover more in depth later. Um, but, uh, I won't be able to go unfortunately, but, um, I did want to mention that, um, I'm really excited for uh, Record Store Day. It's less than two weeks away. Yeah. It's April 22nd. Um, and uh, I had a chance to talk to the co-founder, uh, Michael Kurtz, uh, this last week. But uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, before we jump into that, Mike, tell us a little bit about Record Store Day. Oh, my goodness. Well, Record Store Day, of course, it's an annual event launched back in 2007, held on uh, one Saturday every April and then every Black Friday in November to celebrate the culture of the independently owned record store. Record Mm. Store Day brings together fans, artists, and thousands of independent record stores around the world. And it is such a fantastic event. And God bless them for building this thing to what it is now. And, you know, it's... it's, It's And I'm sure... 
I'm sure he's got people just, you know, clamoring to be involved. And what a fantastic event, again, that's turned into a lot of hard work to lift it and get it off the ground. But boy, it is uh, just something that we all look forward to. It's fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, I'm super excited about it. So like I said, I, I had a chance to talk to Michael Uh, this past week to really find out what we can expect and then talk about the timeline a little bit. If you're an artist or manager and you'd like to participate in the black Friday uh, record store day. So uh, let's let that conversation roll. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. Record store day is coming soon. April 22nd. What can we expect? I think this year is going to be probably the biggest record store day we've ever done for many reasons. A lot of it has to do with the fact we started working with younger artists about eight or 10 years ago and, and moved away from just the iconic classic artists exclusively that we were doing. And the best example of that is the Taylor Swift um, Long Pond Sessions album that's coming out. It's the largest production uh, we've ever done of a record. It's uh, 115,000 worldwide. Wow. Um, about 75,000 of that would be in the U.S. <clears throat> so what it means is that um, we can have a lot of young people lined up uh, uh, along with everybody else. I mean, we've, it's been trending that way anyway. Record Store Day, uh, as of about three or four years ago, is, um, you know, slightly more uh, female than male, um, the the age of average age of a person going to record store day has dropped to about twenty eight from around sixty two when we first started wow. uh, back in two thousand and eight when we we pretty much single handedly relaunched the vinyl business yeah. by ourselves because no one else would yep. do it and we, we made so what's going to happen is you're going to have all the Swifty fans come. Um, and a lot of them come to Record Store Day anyway, but now we're going to have an army of them. And that means that the long, the lines will probably be pretty long in the morning. Um, but the good news is uh, this year's selection of Record Store Day titles is the best we've ever done. I, I mean, I'm just stunned by it. And when I talk to record store owners, they are too. And they, it's, you know, really... Uh, <clears throat> It's it's just a bounty of of uh, of goodness, uh, but how do you deal with that many incredible albums coming out on one day? It's about three hundred twenty five total, and of of them, they're just you can just go down a list whether you're into you know classic iconic artists, uh, you know, uh, or newer artists or jazz or or country or r&b and hip-hop it's all there it's it's a pretty amazing list looking forward to so it's gonna be a very exciting day yeah yeah (laughs) it's one of my favorite days of the year okay so the next record store day after april 22nd is a big one and that's black friday 2023 for those that don't know black friday that's the day after thanksgiving can you kind of walk us through the timeline for those that want to submit music uh, for consideration? Talk a little bit about that timeline. Well, um, it, a lot of it's internal, you know, it's the music industry stuff. It's the, the, these are timelines or dates that we give to artists, managers, labels, distributors or whatnot, so everybody can prepare for it. But the first date that comes up is right after Record Store Day when we um, asked everybody who wants to, to participate to submit their titles 
Um, and we have a, a team of about 15 record store owners that goes through everything that is submitted to us. And so everything that ends up being released on a record store day event is something re- record store owners want. Uh, a lot of times people don't go, well, why did you pick like this <laughs> oddball you know, record? Yeah. And it's like, well, that's because record store owners wanted that record. But anyway, so uh, uh, May 2nd is when everybody turns in all their titles. Um, you know, we're pretty cool about people who come in a little bit later, but that's, that's the, you know, that's our goal. Um, and then we go through a process of proving everything. And that is done by um, June 1st. And then everybody moves into production uh, if they haven't already. A lot of people go into production early because it's, I mean, things have gotten better since uh, COVID where the t- production timeline stretched out to almost six months. Now it's, you know, uh, somewhere between three and four months, depending on who's producing it. So it's pretty much back to, to normal the way it's always been. Um, but uh, so, so June 1st is when everything goes into production. And then we ask everybody to provide every detail and artwork and everything. So we can start building the infrastructure, the website, the listings, uh, everything we use to communicate and educate people on record store day titles. That's turned in by July 1st. Um, and then the stores themselves will start soliciting orders. Uh, I mean, the distributors, we have three record store day distributors, Alliance, AMS, and Ingram, and they start soliciting the orders from the stores on the 23rd and then uh, of October. And then record store days, uh, Black Friday this year, so November 24th. And that's when the big day is. And everything goes on sale and the celebration starts. <laughs> I can't wait, Michael. Um, yeah. Congratulations on all that you've accomplished so far. Can't wait for these record store days. We encourage everybody to get out there, support their uh, local record store. And uh, there's, it sounds like it's an embarrassment of riches this year. So thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. There you well, have it. You can imagine how much work that is to to get it up and running and to continue with the great work they're doing. But man, it's, again, so I many, my hat to everything they do. Yeah, so many great uh, releases, lots of exclusive vinyl, um, so again, record store day, you know, is coming up April 22nd. And then the next one will be black Friday, which of course is a day after Thanksgiving. So that's November 24th. And, uh, we will see you there. I can't wait. Absolutely. And, uh, as you probably know, Jake, I think we exchanged kind of texts about that. We lost a giant in the business this last week. Icon. Uh, Absolutely. Seymour Stein, boy, the founder of Sire Records. And, uh, you know, having worked in the Warner family, you know, we talk a lot about, of course, uh, and specifically Warner Brothers Records and the success they had certainly on an A&R side of things back in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. And so much of that was Seymour Stein on the Sire label. It's unbelievable. The Pretenders, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, all these kind of new wave acts. And what we're listening to in the background, actually, is a song called uh, Hocus Pocus by the band Focus. Which was a hit in the U.S., a strange hit indeed, uh, back in '73, and that was that was something that he licensed, and that's what Seymour did a lot of. Is he would like he would spend a lot of time in the U.K. and things that were just bubbling under, he would sign. And when you look at all that success Warner Brothers Records had in the '70s and '80s, I mean, much of it was was Sire Records and unbelievable. Of course, Madonna and. 
um, just, you know, it's such an eclectic uh, collection of artists, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, he, uh, much to be proud of. And there's a funny line, he worked um, under Sid Nathan, the crazy guy who ran uh, King Records, and uh, when he wanted Seymour to come to work for him, uh, Seymour's dad was very skeptical about that, but uh, uh, Sid Nathan said, your son has shellac in his veins, your son is good for one thing and one thing only, and that's being in the record business. If you don't let him in the music business, he will wind up delivering newspapers for the rest of your life. If you don't want that on your con- on your conscience, you will let him come with me for the summer. <laughs> he was an intern at King Records, which of course had uh, James Brown and stuff like that on labor. So anyway, a, a real you know sort of the quintessential record man. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. Uh, boy, yeah, what a, what a loss, what a loss, but yeah. what, what, what wonderful contributions. Yeah, true legend. Yeah, so I got to tell you, Jay, I've been following your Behind the Set List podcast with our good friend Glenn oh, thank Peebles. You, brother. you guys, it's, you just keep getting fantastic artists on that. I mean, I don't know how it happens, but boy, it's much to be... What, what do you have coming up next? I think I know, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to tell we, me to make sure. Well, it, thank you. It's been such a joy to do. You know, Glenn is a, a great guy, a dear friend, and you know, we talk about him. In fact, we're covering one of his stories this week um, on the... Uh, on the podcast. Um, we've got a couple coming up that I'm pretty excited about. Um, we have Joe Bonamassa, who is just an amazing guitar player. Um, I wish we could do an episode just talking about his guitar collection, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, but, we could. Uh, you know, just a great conversation. So watch that. Um, that should be coming out in the next week or so. But I'm really excited. We recorded a conversation with Shania Twain uh, a couple of days ago, and it's... It was just magic. Um, check out, uh, there's a Netflix documentary out called Not Just a Girl. And it talks about um, her rise to fame and how she just overcame adversity. And, yeah. you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, that's what I learned, you know, from watching her. You know, she her parents tragically died in a car crash, you know, when she was very young, like maybe 20, 22 years old. She had to take care of her siblings. Um, she, you know, at one point got bitten by a tick and got Lyme disease and lost her voice and had health issues and, you know, Mutt Lang, you know, she, she married him, but at some point he left her for her best friend, you know, which sounds like a bad country music song, but just an, an incredible, incredible career. Yeah. I have not seen the documentary. I have it on my list of things I want to watch. Um, and what a, and you know, and, and, and she's been a, kind of away for a while and she's really back. I think she's got a big tour coming up and did a Vegas yeah, residency. World tour. So she's right. World tour. Yeah. So, uh, and you forget how huge she was in that period of time. I mean, I think you told me like that one record, 16 songs on the record, 12 were singles and hit singles yeah. at that. I mean, that's right. remarkable. And she was one oh. of those artists that really sort of country artists that just crossed over into the mainstream in a huge She crossed way. over to pop. Yeah. Yep. And uh, she uh, eventually teamed up with Bruce Springsteen's manager and basically said, look, I want to do a worldwide tour. I want to cross over to pop. Um, and she did. And she yeah. she did it her way, so to speak. And uh, she was definitely a trailblazer in, in a lot of ways. And uh, it was just a wonderful conversation. So probably a couple of weeks before we drop that one. But 
um, just an amazing conversation with Shania Twain. Thanks for uh, thanks for bringing it up. Looking forward to that for sure. And now you sent me a, a. I'll let you kind of tell me where it came from, but a really interesting link to a YouTube video. Yeah, um, my friend Jess Ruggles sent me this nine minute video um, on YouTube, and it's called the Jimi Hendrix Experience. I was there, Hendrix at L.A. Forum by Billy Gibbons. Yes, that Billy Gibbons, and that was a. About a show at the LA Forum, April 26th, 1969. And first of all, it's just a wonderful, wonderfully uh, created video. Um, the animations are really interesting, but it's Billy Gibbons' narration, his storytelling about hanging out with Hendrix and talking with him and seeing the show and how special that show was. Um, I just thought it was magic. Oh, yeah. And he's such a raconteur. I mean, he's really, he's got a gift for, for telling stories. And, you know, he was there. And, and his first band, Moving Sidewalks, did some early opening slots for Hendrix when they were in that neck of the woods, kind of in Texas and in the South. And so we knew him. And, you know, to yeah. hear first person stories of somebody who knew Hendrix is just yeah. really cool. And to, the way that he delivers and everything is 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 really yeah. great. So, well, yeah. And, very, you know, Jimmy cool. was such he was like us. He was a music freak. He was always buying records and he made it so when he was touring that every hotel had to put a record player in the room and he would play records and he and Billy would listen to things. And Billy makes this comment about, um, you know, Jimmy ask him, how does this guy, you know, how are they doing this? And, and Billy just turned it around and said, they're probably listening to your records going, how is he doing this? And, uh, <laughs> exactly. it was it really gave us some insights as to the man uh, who Jimmy was and just uh, about the band and how they performed and him as a person. It was really good. Anyway, it's, it's called the Jimi Hendrix experience. I was there Hendrix at the LA forum by Billy Gibbons. Check it out on YouTube. Um, it's really good. It's really cool. And we will have a link in the notes so you can find that very, very easily. And uh, yeah, really cool. And I've, Actually, got to, got to spend some time one time with Billy, and and he is, he just talks like that the whole time, and and whatever he says, he can give you directions to the restroom, and it just sounds great, you know. Like, it wow. it really does. He's got that <laughs> gift, you know. It's almost that Billy Bob Thornton kind of, ah oh, shucks, but it's uh, it's really good. Um, before we jump into the stories, um, I was reading um the Ledger, which is a a newsletter we talk about. Uh, Glenn Peoples does oh, it. Yeah. Uh, from Billboard, comes out every Friday. And uh, it's really interesting um, because he's talking about, you know, that global recorded music is kind of slowed down, right? It's single-digit growth. Um, and that these DSPs are going to have to work harder to attract new customers and <laughs> keep the ones they already have. Um, and one of the things he points out in the newsletter, which I think is so important, is, you know, one of the ways that they're going to find more growth is probably one of the least appealing facets of digital music. And that's metadata. And we throw that term around a lot. Uh, we metadata. Do. We do. It's super important. 
And uh, if you don't know, metadata is information attached to data that describes it. Mm. In the case of music, it includes the names of artists, tracks, year of release, genre, producer, etc. Although it lacks sex appeal, to say the least, metadata is as <laughs> crucial to a streaming service as the unsung cast and crew members of a Hollywood blockbuster. The stars get the attention, but the movie suffers if everybody else performs poorly. Bad metadata, an album incorrectly listed under the wrong artist, for example, can carry financial implications too. There's a direct line between user experience, customer retention, and a service's ability to raise prices. Yeah. yeah. And we're Super finding important. this. Yeah. We're finding this a lot in our business where let's say we go into sound exchange and look to make sure that our artists are in there properly. Things are spelled mm-hmm. properly because as Glenn points out, and you just said, there are financial implications to having bad metadata. And so uh, word to the wise, make sure that you're checking all of your metadata and make sure not just the artist title version tracks, you know, publishing splits, those things, but everything to sidemen to anything that describes that particular song, um, make sure it's correct because it makes a big difference. And of course, in the in the years of vinyl, you know, the metadata was all there. You know, it's like who <laughs> right. played drums on this song? You flip over the the album cover, and it usually said who played drums on that song. And those are things that I want to listen. I want to know because, you know, it, we all have had that experience where you're listening to something, you're like, oh my god, that's fill in the blanks. That's a great sound. That's a great guitar solo. That's a great this or that. Yeah. And who wrote that? Who who? engineered who played it, who on mastered that. it, yeah. who played on it. All those things yeah. are so important. That's what I want to know when I'm listening to music. And that's what that's what pulls me in. And I assume that's a lot of people's experiences. It's like, yeah. I, and we're going to talk about that, that a little bit more in our third story today about some of the things that are missing um, from the streaming world. And that's definitely part of it. Um, as we get going here, one of the biggest stories we've been covering Uh, for months now is what's going on with TikTok, Um, whether it's helping to, you know, uh, discover artists to make, you know, uh, catalog artists more successful, you know, like we saw with Fleetwood Mac. Um, And then lately it's been uh, the government threatening to shut it down. And there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of um, misinformation out there and our friends over at Gupta Media, um, posted uh, an article called TikTok Myths versus Facts. And I would love to go through some of these myths and what the facts are behind them. So just to kick it off, in response to the recent congressional hearing, the TikTok communications team has been addressing inaccuracies with facts head on. We connected with our partners at TikTok to answer 10 myths that have been circulating around the U.S. and clarify with corrected information. Yeah, interesting. So I'll take the first one. Uh, The first one is the myth is TikTok's parent company, ByteDance Limited, is Chinese owned. And they say in this, the fact is that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, was founded by Chinese entrepreneurs, but today roughly 60% of the company is beneficially owned by global institutional investors. 20% is owned by ByteDance employees around the world, including nearly 7,000 Americans. And 20% is owned by the company's founder, who is a private individual and is not part of any state or government entity. Okay, the second myth, 
Decisions about TikTok are made in Beijing. TikTok, which is not available in mainland China, has established Los Angeles and Singapore as headquarters uh, to meet its business needs. TikTok's CEO, Xiao uh, Chu, is based in Singapore and oversees all key day-to-day -day and strategic decision-making when it comes to TikTok. TikTok's senior leadership, that team is based in Singapore, the United States, and Ireland. Right. Another myth is TikTok manipulates content in a way that benefits the Chinese government or harms American interests. Uh, they say the fact is that TikTok is in an entertainment app. The content on TikTok is generated by our community. TikTok does not permit any government to influence or change its recommendation model. The next myth, ByteDance, the parent company, censors TikTok content on behalf of the CCP or Chinese government. Well, the fact is there are no TikTok content moderators in China. Content moderation on TikTok is overseen by the U.S. and Ireland-led trust and safety team. All content is moderated based only on publicly available community guidelines, which are also developed by the trust and safety team. Regardless of how content is flagged to TikTok, no content is removed without going through an established moderation process. TikTok does not remove content on behalf of any government, except in compliance with legal processes for content that violates local law. This next one is interesting. The myth, of course, is TikTok stores U.S. Uh, user data in China where multiple Chinese nationals have access to it. Now, they say the fact is 100% of traffic in the United States is routed to Oracle. Access to that environment is managed exclusively by, exclusively by TikTok U.S. Data Security, a team led by Americans in America. TikTok has begun the process of deleting historic protected user data in non-Oracle servers. Once that process is complete, it will, it will effectively end all access to protected U.S. user data outside of TikTok USDS. That's their uh, US, mm -hmm. TikTok U.S. Data Security. Uh, it will effectively end all access to protected user data outside of TikTok USDS except under limited circumstances. Very interesting. Right. Yeah, the next myth. The Chinese government can compel ByteDance to share U.S. TikTok user data. The fact, TikTok Incorporated, which offers TikTok app in the U.S., is incorporated in California and Delaware and is subject to U.S. laws and regulations governing privacy and data security. Under Project Texas, all protected U.S. data will be stored exclusively in the U.S., and under the control of the U.S.-led security team. Right, another one here. TikTok collects a significant amount of sensitive data on its users. That is That's the myth. The myth. That's the myth. Yeah. The fact is TikTok's privacy policy fully describes the data collected, which helps the app function, operate securely, and improve the user experience. The current versions of the TikTok app do not monitor keystrokes, collect GPS location in the U.S., or use face or voice prints to identify individuals. Yeah. You know, what, what's interesting about all of these myths and facts is something we touched on last week, and that is that when you're reading about Congress, um, uh, they want to potentially shut it down. Um, but what, what I noticed is a lot of the people that wanted to shut it down were either misinformed uh, or they had never used the app before. Right. They didn't even know yeah. how it worked. 
And I feel like if you're going to be in Congress and voting on something that affects people's businesses and their lives, that you should do a little research and have your facts straight. Uh, and you would hope that, but I think politically it's an easy thing to kind of jump on that bandwagon. Oh, it's the Chinese. It's, you know, it's, it's bad and they're going to have our data and they could brainwash us. And the facts just don't, bear that out. So I thought this was a really interesting piece. It really is. Yeah. And uh, just like, like a lot of things, there's a lot of uh, incorrect information floating around out there. And, you know, you just got to kind of collect the, uh, the information as best you can to, to form a, a, a learned opinion. But you're right about that. It was clear <laughs> in those hearings that yeah. a, lot of those, a lot of those folks didn't know what they were talking about. So no. Interesting. No. But hey, by the way, yeah. we should de- mention, Jay, the folks that help us put the oh, show on every yes, week. Yes, we should. Oh, my goodness. Couldn't Thank do it without them. Thank you for reminding them. me. Of course, including our friends at HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yeah, we love Bands in Town. Over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their superfans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed. And big thanks to the Music Business Association. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us for the Music Biz Conference in Nashville, May 15th through 18th. So Coming up. Big thanks to the... It's coming up. It's going to be here just in a couple of weeks, actually. A few weeks. Uh, so big thanks to the Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot and bands in town. We certainly appreciate it. And by the way, I get to do this show every week with my good friend Jay Gilbert. If you don't know who he is by now, what the hell's the matter with you? We tell you say this every week. But hey, my good friend uh, Jay Gilbert, he is a music <laughs> business consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, Warner Music Groups, and a little company called Fox Home Entertainment. A little startup company uh, over there called Fox yeah. Home Entertainment. Little internet startup, and uh, this gentleman across from me is <laughs> Michael Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music Group, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, where I first uh, met him and worked with him and showed him my bootleg collection, and we had cheeseburgers, and that's, that's <laughs> yes, how it all started. And Jay likes milkshakes, by the way, uh, but no sure whipped do. cream on the milkshake. No, no whipped cream, cream or no cherry. On, yeah, no. just the milkshake. Just the goodness yeah. of the milkshake. Uh, I'm a purist. Down with that. You know that about me. Uh, you are a purist. That's exactly right. <laughs> At least when it comes to milkshakes. Uh, all right, Jay, how about if we jump into our second story? It's from our friends over at Billboard, the case for and against higher streaming subscription rates. Yeah, and as we've mentioned Glenn a Peoples. number of times. Yeah. Yeah, Glenn Peoples on it. Uh, and of course, we've always talk about how our friends over at, let's say, HBO Max or Netflix, no no thoughts whatsoever, no no worries when they raise their rates. But for some reason, our, our friends in music streaming do not like to raise their rates in a way that the streaming video services clearly do. 
Yeah, so, I feel that's changing. I feel like the mm-hmm. tide is turning a little bit. And as Glenn points out, J.P. Morgan Chase analysts estimate that uh, a Spotify rate increase for U.S. individual plans only would create incremental revenue annually of $200 million. So, you know, with some of these markets, you know, falling to single-digit recorded music revenue growth in 2022, there are rising expectations that Spotify will follow Apple Music and Amazon Music and raise the price of its individual plans in the U.S. and maybe even other markets. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget, last year, growth in the U.S. music s- subscription revenue fell to 7.2%, down from 22% back in 2021. That was the lowest annual rate since the subscription market grew just 2.9% way back in 2010. That was a year before yeah. Spotify launched in the U.S. and transformed a business that depended on downloads to one ruled by streaming. Yeah, uh, as we talked about last week, I think with subscriptions Mm -hmm. now accounting for 57.9% of U.S. recorded music revenue, overall revenue growth slowed to 6.1% from 23.2 the prior year. Yeah, and you know what? Those are are good. I mean, those are good numbers. We've been spoiled by all these double digit growth year over year over year. You know, so when you see something like, oh, well, it's slowed 6.1%, you're like, wow, yeah, that is slower, but it's still growing. Yes, exactly. Um, So, you know, it's as they say in the article, the sudden slowdown could have a number of causes. Most markets stayed healthy in 2021 as the pandemic boosted all those music subscription services, but these increased competition in the attention economy, the attention economy, Jay. Uh, So as they say, uh, TikTok is at least partially responsible for the softer growth. Uh, and this is the this is referring to uh, SNEP, which is France's record industry trade group. Right. And it says they're in their twenty two and their twenty twenty two annual report revealed that seventy seven percent of sixteen to twenty four year olds say they discover a lot of new artists on TikTok. Forty five percent of this duh. group, yeah, yeah, now spend more time on the app, which is not monetized well. Than on music services such as Spotify. Yeah, I, so I love that they starting... they point out, you know, seventy seven percent of sixteen to twenty four year olds, you know, say they discover quote a lot of new artists on TikTok. Well, yeah, you know, we've <laughs> definitely seen that. Thank you, um, thank you, Captain. He, he points out that yeah, exactly. He points out that rising rates will create new revenue for rights holders. Um, and also creators and, you know, these digital services, just as growth is slowing in many major markets. So Barclays estimates that 10% price bump by all subscription services would increase earnings per share at Universal Music Group by 13% and add 400 million euros, which is about $430 million of revenue. Um, so I guess what they're saying here is is sort of obvious that if you raise the rates, you're going to create more revenue. I think the challenge is going to be, where does that money go? Um, is it going to eventually benefit the songwriters, for example? You know, and that's that's where I'd like to see some of these um, some of these increases in revenue go. Yeah. So there was a Morgan Stanley conference uh, earlier in March. And uh, Music Watch managing partner Russ Krupnik uh, was talking about the first music subscription products. And you'll recall that was Rhapsody. Yeah. And 
back in 2003, Rhapsody cost $9.95 a month. Adjusted for inflation, that's equal to $16.25 today, 63% above what Spotify is charging, mm-hmm. and 48% more than Amazon Music and Apple Music recently increased individual rates. So, you know, we're, we're talking, it's basically the same price as it was back in 2003 sure. for Rhapsody today. And that's just unbelievable when you think about it. And uh, Right. Yeah, yeah, and so it's we, the same so everything price. Everything is undervalued. But, but to your point, it's it's less because if you adjust for inflation, yes, it's it's much less. You know, Spotify for its part seems confident its product could withstand a broad uh, price increase. Um, so they said we obviously know our competitors have raised prices, and we think we have a better product than most of our competitors. That was their CFO, Paul Vogel. He said that at that Morgan Stanley conference. So if our competitors are able to raise prices and we think we have the best product in the business, it obviously bodes well for our ability over time for pricing. Right. But they also take a stance that keeping rates low in their mind is good for business. Back in January, earlier this year in January, Daniel Eck, of course, is the CEO on an earnings call, said that Spotify has two strategies to choose from. (laughs) Grow the number of subscribers or increase the revenue per subscriber. He says generally our approach when we're early in a market is to try to grow the number of participants by maintaining a competitive price. Sure. Yeah. He said over time, he added, more of the revenue growth comes from price increases as the market matures. But because it operates in 184 markets, Spotify doesn't have a single approach. In some markets, he said, we're mostly focused on growth. And look, they've grown. I mean, they're a beast. They've got, you know, so many subscribers and they continue uh, to grow. Spotify may have been fortunate, you know, not to raise its standard plan prices in the wake of global supply chain problems, persistent inflation. Consumers are increasingly price sensitive. Um, You know, in the short term, Spotify could have bought itself some goodwill. And according to Mark Mulligan, he said it can make a case that it's helping consumers through a downturn, you know, over the long term. However, music subscription services, unwillingness to raise their rates could put them at a disadvantage to their video peers that you just mentioned. Yeah. Mark said basically streaming music waited so long to change prices that a whole generation expects these prices. So it's an interesting Kind of, I don't know if conundrum is the right word, but sort I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they could bump up and add two bucks to it and nobody would blink an eye. That's just my take on it. I think, right. you know, we get used to the music services we have and where we are far more, um, uh, not we don't think twice about canceling let's let's say we're not watching hbo this month we'll cancel that and and maybe netflix will keep but maybe next month that that changes you can bounce around with video services based on what you're watching but for music it just seems like everybody's pretty content with staying with whomever they're with uh, barring any insane price yeah there isn't high churn and i think part of that is that you get used to the interface and the platform but also you create your own playlist typically and right. yes, there is software out there to help you export and import your playlists, but I don't think uh, the masses are going to go to that trouble. Um, and it, look, it's, it's very affordable uh, to have 100 million tracks 
at your fingertips. And uh, I think the time is right. And like they pointed out before, there are other folks like Apple Music that have already raised rates. And uh, it doesn't seem like anybody's uh, throwing a fit. Now, if you look into your crystal ball, Jay, which looks funny, by the way, with the crystal ball and the bunny suit that you're wearing today. Yeah. But if you're looking into the crystal ball, sure. (laughs) What what do you think is going to happen with prices with Spotify in the next, let's say, between now and this summer? Keep them the same or raise rates? I think um, they're probably going to raise the rates, maybe not that soon, um, because summer's coming pretty fast. You know, we're already in April. Um, But I do think that in the next year, we'll see price increases. Yeah, Yeah. me too. Dramatic price increases or moderate? No, I think it's going to, they're going to follow suit with Amazon and Apple and have modest increases. Um, Look, eventually... Uh, these things have to increase uh, in price, um, like you said, you know, adjusting for inflation. You know, it's just it's ridiculously low. And I think if we're going to pay uh, the rights holders and the um, songwriters uh, a better share um, or, or more money, I should say, um, that's going to have to come from increased rates as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, We will see what happens. And let's jump to our last story, Jay. This is from the CBC documentary. Is the music industry being reshaped for the better or worse by tech companies? And this is different for us. Yeah, Yeah. we don't don't typically uh, review or talk about videos. Um, It's usually about uh, articles that were in your morning coffee. And I did post this video in your morning coffee. I thought it was really well done. Um, some really smart people are on it. You mentioned it was uh, by the CBC. Um, that's uh, CBC Radio Canada. That's the uh, Canadian Public Broadcast Service. Um, and it features commentary by a lot of folks that we know and that we've covered in your morning coffee, you know, like uh, media journalist uh, Tatiana uh, Sirisano, uh, British musician Tom Gray. American journalist uh, Kalefa Sané, um, writer uh, Stephen Witt, Canadian radio host Alan Cross, and author John Seabrook. A lot of smart and talented people, and they basically walk through sort of the, the history of how the music industry got to where it is, and they talk about a lot of issues that are currently being struggled with, and it's really interesting to hear smart people uh, talking about what's gone on in the music industry and what's going on in the music industry. Yeah, for sure. And you know, a lot of, some of the things we're going to talk about certainly is on the on the sort of appliance side, if you will. And and you and I were talking before we hit record this morning about you know when we were in that uh, advanced technology group over at Universal, that was something we paid a lot of attention to, which is how yeah. does the devices, how does that drive and change consumers? behavior and and you know how does that affect everything in the music business and a lot of companies were not paying attention to that but you sent me a really interesting graphic that shows kind of you know going back to all the way back to the late 70s and you and I were talking about the Sony Walkman and how oh my gosh. how liberating that was back in the day and it's hard to remember if you're a certain unless you're a certain age what it was like you know you when you well, had tell, to actually tell tell our audience uh, not everybody knows what a Sony Walkman is okay. tell them what it is uh, it was a it was a a very small device that, that basically played a cassette tape, but it was about the size. I'm trying to think of a. It, it was a pack it was of cigarettes. Small, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, a little bit bigger than that. But yeah, you you know you, it, enough something you could hold in your hand and it had a clip so you could put the clip on your belt so you could put this on your belt and it had a very lightweight headphones on it and oh my god it changed everything and I I, I remember sitting and making tapes at home to for my workout and for running for jogging and yeah. um, it just liberated is the only word I can think of. You know, it's obviously we all have that ability now with our all of our devices, but sure. this was really the first one, and that it, was way back in, 19, in 1979. Yeah, it, it was everything. first of its kind, really, mm-hmm. and it was it was groundbreaking. Um, later, you know, they had the Discman, you know, we had MP, MP3 players down the road, all of that stuff, but before the Walkman, you couldn't just get on your bike and ride around and listen to music, and it was absolutely right. a game changer, unless you wanted to hold up a big boom box or something like Correct. that. That's right. So which people did sub, certainly, of course. Yes. The sub headline is one tap and you can hear any song in the world, but who benefits CBC news looks at how Spotify Ticketmaster, live nation and TikTok are changing the very nature of music. And at the beginning of this documentary, um, uh, Tatiana Sarasano from uh, media, uh, she's very smart, very eloquent. Um, she had this really great quote, and I know you caught this too. She said, why would you think that music is valuable? Value is driven by scarcity and music isn't scarce at all. I thought that was like a really bold statement and there's a lot of truth oh, to it today. Yeah. Well, and, and especially when, when we were kids and young people, you know, you remember you had a finite amount of money and you'd go into a record store and, and half the, the, the debate with yourself was, Okay, I've got enough for for two records, but I, it, that's all the money I have. But there's like nine records that I really want, and so you you would sit there and agonize over that decision, and and <laughs> yeah. money was scarce. Your your budget was low, and you right. couldn't get everything you wanted. And that's no. that is the dramatic difference that my kids don't get. It's like music, all music is just there. It's just yeah. there, and that's not the way it was. And no. that's an interesting point by by Tatiana that it's like yeah. yes, it is no longer scarce, therefore, perhaps no longer valuable. Not like it used to be, um, certainly. And they also talk about some of the I don't know negative side uh, of of streaming. And I love that discussion. They talk about how you know album art isn't the same as it used to be. You know, you certainly don't have the size, you know, of that vinyl album. And to your point earlier, you don't know who the sidemen were on it. You don't see all those liner notes and all of that. When you look at an album cover online, it's the size of a postage stamp. You know, if you're looking like on your phone, they, they think that there's less engagement. And I think that that's accurate um, when it comes to, and, and maybe even less fandom um, because of the fact that you can listen literally for hours uh, to streaming and maybe not even know who the artists were that you were listening to. Yeah, exactly. They also you know, talk about you know when a physical album or vinyl or CD, let's say, uh, the rights holder and the, or artist is paid a set amount regardless of whether the album is played once or a thousand times. With streaming, needless to say, the rights holder or artist is only paid on consumption. We've moved to a mode of access over ownership, and that really has changed the game. Yeah, it sure has. And I don't know if you knew this, but on TikTok, you're paid by creations. So when someone creates uh, a video with your your music in it, um, it's, it's a whole different game. And 
um, Tatiana was talking about how it's, it's a lot harder to even create a shared cultural experience, you know, and she used the example of Michael Jackson's thriller. There were certain things like, you know, on the Motown anniversary show where he did the moonwalk for the first time or whatever. We were all watching that. That was a shared cultural moment. And, you know, there's dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of those kinds of moments that now are few and far between, uh, because of this new streaming ecosystem. Right. And we talked last week about, um, they, they use the figure 20% in here, but you know, how much released music is never streamed, you know, the, the yeah. forgotify.com, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff. It's just, it's unbelievable how much music is uploaded every day, as we've talked about many times on the show. And yet so much of it just is never, ever streamed. And, and then even more of that is streamed maybe between zero and 10 times. So it's yeah. so much music there, but a lot of it just is completely ignored. Yeah. And they talk about that a lot in this uh, documentary. Um, and if you look at um, most DSPs have about the same music, um, give or take 100 million tracks and it's growing as we talk about uh every day but then you've got you know soundcloud which has over 350 million and i would be really curious because that there's such a low barrier to entry to to put your music up there um i would imagine that that percentage of things that haven't been played once could be even higher um they also talk about how tiktok is really really changed the business and and that's because fans really they participate today and if you think about that you know when we were listening to our sony walkman riding our bike around you know listening to a cassette tape you know we weren't participating we were simply listening to well i guess you could say we participated in that we were curating our own playlist right we we could take songs from different records and make our own mixtapes and Boy, that was my youth. Uh, so many of those, right? And but today, it's more of our participation with that music. Where not only are you maybe, let's say, dancing to it on your TikTok or doing something to it, but you're actually manipulating the the song itself. They talked about this Lady Gaga track that was sped up and. Uh, it actually, you know, it blew up and we've talked about how things are reverbed or slowed down or sped up. You're actually manipulating the actual creation. So you're a participant now and that's different Mm -hmm. than it's been in the past. Very different. They also mentioned something that's really interesting. uh, The age of algorithmic anxiety. And before we say what that is, we should also mention that, you know, when we talk about an algorithm in mathematics, it's simply a set of steps used to perform a calculation, whether it's the formula for the area of a triangle, the lines of a complex proof. But when we talk about algorithms online, we're usually referring to what developers call recommender systems, Mm -hmm. which have been employed since the advent of personal computing to help uh, users index and sort floods of digital content. So they refer to in this documentary about the age of algorithmic anxiety interacting online today means being besieged by system generated recommendations do we want what the machines tell us to want and oh that just lately has driven me crazy for whatever reason all these google ads and stuff that i'm that are fed to me i'm just 
I'm fed up. And so I totally related <laughs> to this and, and the uh, algorithmic anxiety because I'm just yeah, tired that of, was, you know, you look, you yeah. look something up and then, then you're fed that product and it's like, Oh my God, please. That's well, this is a little bit different in that. And it was Tatiana who brought this up in that if you're, you know, they mentioned that, um, some young person was saying that, boy, this algorithm knows me better than I know myself. And, you know, it's feeding right. her, you know, these recommendations. And I can tell you from looking at my, let's say, uh, Spotify release radar, discover weekly, things like that. They're really good at discovery mm-hmm. and rediscovery. But the point they're trying to make is, well, who's controlling that? And do they have biases? And yes. they probably do in, in some way. And so that's that algorithmic anxiety she talks about is, you know, do we want these algorithms, these uh, machines to tell us what we should be listening to next? So there's, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Yeah, for without a doubt. But uh, it's been kind of top of my mind lately. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting also, that as they talk about the different kind of products, like we were talking a little bit ago about the different products. And, and we talk about the Walkman and the Walkman back in 79 was $150. So which doesn't sound like fact, that much. But back then, that would be like, then. as a kid, that was my week salary. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's three or $400 today for a, for a device. And you oh, forget how, oh yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, but you know, that's, that's how much things cost back in those days. And of course, manufacturing processes have changed all that these days and we can get stuff for dirt cheap. But you know, when you yeah. wanted these devices, whether it was a Walkman or a Discman or all of these things, I remember the Diamond Rio, that was the first MP3 player that came out back in 98. That well, thing was super expensive yeah, at the time it, as well. It, it, technically, it was the MP man. The F10 came out before the Diamond Rio, but they were both in the oh, same right. year. So it's it's you're right. They're ba- basically they both came out in '98. But one thing I want to make sure we talk about is there was a lot of discussion in this uh, documentary about blank tape, and I had kind of forgotten yeah. the uproar over. Uh, they called it piracy and there was this whole campaign uh, you can google it you know home taping is killing music and they had commercials and you know it was artists saying you know basically don't do home taping it's killing the music industry and for me it it wasn't i wouldn't borrow an album from you tape it and give you the album back i use blank tapes to make my own mixtapes and most people that i know did that, but I can see why they were up in arms that one person could buy a vinyl LP and run off several cassettes, uh, for friends. But I had forgotten what a big deal home taping, uh, was. Yes, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, so yeah, things boy through the years and, and how it's just a great documentary though. It's really worth watching and getting an eye. And it, like you, you kind of forget things and to see, be reminded of, of certain things that happen along the kind of time continuum to where we are uh, right. in, in the music business and in the technology side of things. And yeah. here we are, Jay. It's 2023. And yeah, what, a, what an amazing story of how we got here. Yeah. One of the things that they brought up, um, which seems obvious um, in in hindsight, was when CDs came out, you know, which uh, I was working in a record store at the time. I remember it vividly. It was 1983, and we had a rack of, you know, CDs. But when those CDs, you know, started to really sell and people were replacing their collections, 
we called that the salad days, right? But what they point mm -hmm. out in this documentary that I thought was really interesting is that now music was digitized. Oops. Right. Um, Oops. And because and, it was... And by the way, we didn't know what that meant, though, at the time. Or no. I didn't know what that meant. No. Yeah. No, we didn't until um, I was reading an article about, you know, when CDs first came out, and it, it said something like, you know, there's no wear and tear on the discs because light has no mass. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, how does this, yeah. this is like voodoo. This is witchcraft. How does this work? And, but then, you know, they go through and we won't go into all the detail, but they go into, you know, how the MP3 came about and what happened when, you know, that was basically brought to record companies and they dismissed it and didn't see the opportunity. And so yeah. now it was like this virus. So Anyway, they go into everything from, you know, what, what happened, you know, when COVID hit and, you know, the pro rata versus user centric, you know, um, they talk about voice, you know, with the Amazon Echo, the Google Nest, Apple HomePod, all of that stuff. But it's just a fantastic documentary. Uh, there's a, uh, it's in your morning coffee. Uh, check it out. I think it's maybe 45 minutes long, something like that. But it's definitely worth your time. Um, it's a fantastic documentary. It is absolutely fun to go back and reminisce. And I think one of the great, I'll, I'll leave with this line that, that she kind of, that Tatiana mentioned in the documentary, which is, you know, you forget when you were, when you were, let's say, even when you had a cassette or when you had albums, um, you knew exactly what you were playing and listening to. And she has a line in here where she says, it's easy for listeners to listen for hours without knowing who the artists are now. And in many ways, that's making it much more anonymous to what you're listening. And I, that, I do that all the time. You know, you're, you're just listening kind of casually and suddenly you go like, oh, that's great. Who, who is this? And you got to go back and look. And you forget that in, back in those days, it was much more active listening because you knew you, you put the stuff in or you made yeah. that tape. You know what those artists were. Mm -hmm. And now it's really easy to not know who the artists are. And yeah, that's not especially good. after that first dozen or so, you know, the re research has shown, it's easy for you to say, that after that first 12, 15 tracks, um, your engagement with it drops off. And yeah. it's more lean back and you will miss, you know, if you're listening to a playlist, for example, you may not know what those songs are and they certainly don't back announce like, you know, some radio stations do. So, yeah. No. And for, for those of us like you and I both working with artists over the years, that's, you know, you, that's the last thing you want. You want people to fall in love with your artists. And how do you do yeah. that when they're just anonymously, those records are being played? It's really hard stuff. But anyway, yeah. good art, a great document, uh, documentary worth your time to watch it. So we yes, encourage sir. you to do so. And uh, we got to wrap up the show. So we do want to say <laughs> yeah. if you enjoy our show, because we sure appreciate you listening in, please tell a friend. Just tell Jane, one. I would certainly appreciate it. Just come yep. on, exactly. We appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, let's see. And of course, big thanks to the Music Business Association, uh, Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town. We really appreciate all of the part participation from the folks that help put it together. So Jay and I could not do it without them at all. So on that note, we do want to thank everyone for listening. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll be back next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.